All right, well, I want to tell you about this man, Polycarp. How many of you know about Polycarp? Okay. Quite a few. I want to tell you his story. He was born in 69 AD, and uh, he died in 155 AD. And I want to tell you about his death, actually. Uh, he was 86 years old at the time. He was residing in a, in a country house not far from the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor. It was a Friday afternoon, he was resting upstairs, and when some fully armed Roman soldiers barged into his house looking to arrest him as if they were arresting a dangerous criminal, they were looking to arrest this feeble old man, and Polycarp welcomed the visitors and ordered food and drink to be served to them, and before he was taken away in chains, he had but one request, he requested for an hour of prayer, and the soldiers, the officers, right, Having sit seated and being eating and, and drinking the food, said, all right, you take an hour, go ahead. And Polycarp continued to pray for two hours as these men listened and maybe had doubts about taking such one away. But they were under orders to arrest him, and uh, they took him away. And upon entering the city, Polycarp was brought into a stadium that was filled with people who were entertained by watching Christians being eaten by beasts and being burned at the stake. Everyone knew why Polycarp was there. He was a professing Christian, and he was a candidate to be burned or eaten. The Romans were planning to put him to death unless he recanted. So Polycarp was ushered in to stand right there before the proconsul who asked him if he was indeed Polycarp. And Polycarp affirmed it, and when he did affirm his identity, the proconsul said this, Have respect to your old age. Swear by the future of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. Now, right, in those days, Christians were called the atheists because they rejected the Roman pantheon of gods. So, Polycarp was called to reject the atheists. And so what Polycarp did is he, he looked around the stadium, all the people, and he said, away with the atheists. Of course, that didn't satisfy the proconsul very much. He wasn't pleased, but he gave him another opportunity. He said, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. This is the famous line of Polycarp. He said, eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Yet again, Polycarp was given another opportunity to recant. The proconsul said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And Polycarp replied, since you're vainly insisting that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, hear me declare this with boldness. I am a Christian. The proconsul tried again, I have wild beasts at hand. And to these I will cast you if you don't repent. And Polycarp said, call them. He said, for we are not accustomed to repent as what is good to adopt what is evil. Again, the proconsul said, I will cause you to be consumed by the fire, seeing that you despise the wild beasts if you do not repent. And again, Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and afterwards is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. The proconsul then instructed the herald to announce the entire stadium three times. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. 
Thus, he's ordered to be burned at the stake. And once the funeral pile was, was ready, Polycarp laid aside his garment and he walked onto the pile. They were about to fix his hands to the stake with a hammer and nails. And Polycarp said, Now leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also endure me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. They didn't nail him. They just, just bound him by his hands behind him. And thus... Being bound like a ram, taken from the flock for a sacrifice, Polycarp looked to heaven, and here's the prayer that he, he prayed. By the way, if you want to read this, just Google the, the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's an ancient document. It was written just recently after his death. It describes everything that I've just told you here today. So you, can read it, you can read it all about 10 minutes. Polycarp looked to heaven and he said, this was his prayer. He says, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, he didn't raise his hands because his hands were bound, I guess. But we have rece- by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers, and of every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, among whom may I be accepted this day before you as a fat and acceptable sacrifice according as you, the ever-truthful God, is foreordained, have revealed beforehand, and now is fulfilled. Wherefore, also I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. This is a great prayer of praise to God. The fire then was kindled and the the flame blazed forth with great fury. And uh, those who watched it saw that it formed an arch encompassing around the body of Polycarp. It wasn't really burning him, it was browning him. One one eyewitness said that Polycarp appeared um, not like flesh which is burnt, but it's like bread that is baked. When the Officials perceived that his body would not be consumed by the fire. They commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger, which they did, and so much blood came out of his side that the fire was extinguished. And so was the life of Polycarp. Now, what's especially important about the, about the story of Polycarp is that he was the bishop of Smyrna, <clears throat> the same church we're going to look at today, <clears throat> excuse me, this morning in our exposition of the book of Revelation. That same church that John told that they too, some of them may too, may be martyred for their faith. So if if you haven't done so already, I invite you to take your Bible and open them to to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at at verses 8 through 11, which is the message of Jesus to the church at Smyrna. I just want to read just these four verses, real, real simple verses. He says this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, this is Jesus speaking, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The, the title of my message this morning is Be Faithful Unto Death. It's what I'm calling all of you to do. It's what I'm calling me to do. Is to be faithful unto death. That, that phrase comes from verse 10. Right there at the end, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This was the call of Jesus upon those at, at Smyrna to know that prison awaited them, expecting tribulation, perhaps torture, and death. Jesus says, when that time comes, if that time comes, be faithful. Be faithful until the end. It's called martyrdom. The call not to deny Jesus. And in many ways, right, this is the book, this is the burden of the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation was written to a persecuted people. That's how John introduced himself in Revelation. You can look back at chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, I, verse 9 rather, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus he was a partner in the tribulation with those he's writing to. Those he's writing to were going through tribulation. That is hard times, difficult times. And, and, and John also was going through the hard times as he was exiled on the prison island of Patmos. And, and that really is, is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. It's written during a time of persecution. And, and John writes to his readers to assure him that Jesus is the king, that he's coming back to judge the world He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to establish his reign. And thus, for us, it's the importance of enduring until the end. To see him come back. To, to rejoice in that day when he indeed does come back. And I believe this is right where America, and me included in this, have difficulty understanding Revelation because we live lives of ease. Right? We easily miss the heart of John in Revelation, being more interested in the times of when things will happen and missing what's going to happen and realizing the blessing that it is when Christ comes back. We're interested in this time so that we might avoid tribulation. I know of people who buy bunkers and buy food just to say, okay, the tribulation's coming and so we've got to get all prepared so we can avoid it. And those he's writing to are in the midst of it. I mean, the first three centuries of the church were times of intense persecution upon Christians. And they were enduring it. And, and so just think about Polycarp, 155 A.D. This was some 60 years after John wrote. He's going through difficult times. It, and, and everyone who read this letter was going through difficult times. Being persecuted, being hated by the Romans, being hated by the Jews. It wasn't a matter of trying to avoid They couldn't avoid it. So when we try to avoid it, we like, we like miss the whole perspective of it. It says, no, 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 tribulation is coming and you need to endure through it. And they were facing the real possibility of death for the sake of Jesus. N not all of them. If you look, if you look uh, again, um, it, it says in verse 10, um, do not fear what's about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. It's not all, right? The, the church of Smyrna wasn't wiped out. I mean, Polycarp was an example that he was one who was there and was, was a leader over the church. The church didn't get wiped out because they all were killed, but some of them were killed. And they needed to walk 
faithfully through that. And that's why the first thing that Jesus says to them makes so much sense. If you look at verse 8, he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And here we see my first point this, this morning. I'm just calling verse 8, Jesus lives. Jesus lives. And verse 8 begins the same way that every letter in Revelation begins. But with Jesus right, addressing himself to the angel of the church. Here it is to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And again, I'm not sure whether it's a real angel that, that oversaw the church or whether it's a, a leader of the church that, whose job is to give messages. Like that's what uh, angels do. One who brings a message says pastor of the church, elders of the church, a leader of the church. We don't know, but the, the point is clear. It's a personalized message to the church in Smyrna. Again, let me remind you right here, John is writing from the prison island of Patmos to the seven churches of Revelation, right? We can probably say them together right now. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are real churches in real cities. And the city of Smyrna had had quite a history. It's really interesting as you you look at this. It was uh, founded as a Greek colony as far back as 1000 B.C., 1000 B.C., that's, that's David's time. Abraham was 2000 B.C., David was 1000 B.C. About, about that time when David is in Israel, the city of Smyrna was actually founded. But about 400 years later, uh, the Lydians came and attacked the city, essentially destroyed it, left it in ruins. It died. And then about 300 years later, around 300 B.C., it was rebuilt under the leader of a, a man named Lysimachus. Lys- I don't know how you say his name. Lisa Mikas. But he enlarged the streets and he had a vision to make them, them broad and straight. And so by the time of the New Testament, Smyrna was a beautiful, thriving city engaged in much trade. Lots of political and religious influence in the region. If you will, Smyrna was a city that had died and had come to life. It was flourishing when John wrote the Revelation. This is the very thing Jesus, though, says about himself. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. Like the city of Smyrna, Jesus himself experienced death. And like the city of of Smyrna, Jesus himself was very much alive and well. As I've said, Jesus lives. And it's exactly what those in Smyrna needed to hear. It's almost verbatim what we saw in chapter 1 and verse 17. When, when, When John fell at his feet as though dead... Jesus laid his right hand on John and says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's exactly what someone who's potentially facing death needs to hear. Jesus conquered death. Death isn't the final word. There's hope after death. Right? Because if there's hope after death, you need not fear death. That's going to be what Jesus tells those in Smyrna when we get to verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Because see, I'm alive. And, and though you may die, right? I, I'm alive. And you too need no reason to fear death because I conquered death. Yes, he was dead. Crucified on the cross for our sins. That whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life, right? Ushered into his kingdom if we believe in Him, His death wasn't permanent. He rose from the dead. We celebrated every Easter just a few weeks ago we did. That Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death for us. That we too might rise from the dead and live with Him. We have no need to fear the grave. 
Death has lost its power. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus took the stinger out of death. Can't hurt us. And see, once you lose your fear of death, not a lot to fear. Losing your fear of death can stir boldness in you, can reduce your fear of man. Losing your fear of death can help you live fully today. Really, it's the first point of what Jesus says to the church. He says you can endure, you can live fully because Jesus lives. Well, in verse 9, we see that Jesus knows. Look at verse 9, it starts off this. It says, I know. Look what Jesus knows about this church in Smyrna. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows all about the church in Smyrna. He knows about their situation. He knows about what they're dealing with. And it's not unique to Smyrna, by the way. If you look at all seven churches in the book of Revelation, you'll see a similar pattern. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil and patient endurance. We looked at that last week. And next week, we'll look at what he says to Pergamum, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We're going to see that in chapter 2, verse 18. Verse 19, rather. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And every church to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. I know. I I know what's, what's going on. He knows about the church. He knows about Rock Valley Bible Church. And for those of you from Morningstar, as I talked about last week, he knows about Morningstar. He knows. And in every single one of these, <clears throat> he knows it's good, and he knows it's bad. And so, like, is it good that he knows? Like, yeah, it's good that he knows. Is it, well, some things maybe we wish Jesus didn't know, but he knows them. He knows our good points and our bad points. And as each letter progresses, he begins with a commendation about the things the church is doing well. And then he has some concerns about the church. There's some ways in which Jesus is critical. And last week, when we were in Ephesus, we saw he commends the church being a hardworking, diligent, discerning church. But then Jesus expressed his concerns that they'd left their first love. And so the, the concern basically is then the call for application oftentimes. And we'll see this pattern throughout the seven churches. Except that here in Smyrna, nothing bad is said about this church. Instead, Jesus comes with just compassion and grace. And by the way, let, just let me, let me encourage you that. With, when, when, when the world is coming upon a church, there's not a lot of infighting in a church because you don't have a lot of leisure time. Like you're so difficult fighting outside that it's difficult. When, when a church is reaching out and trying to do things, it's difficult to fight inside. When there's fighting inside, that, that's, that's all difficult to do. It's not that everything was perfect with Smyrna, but Jesus knowing the difficulty of what they were going through, said nothing bad about them. The only other church he says nothing bad about is the church in Philadelphia. That small but faithful church. They had but little power. The rich church of Laodicea, he's got a lot to say about them. But the small church. I can't wait to preach about Philadelphia. Like Rock Valley Bible Church, small church. Just faithful church, hopefully that's where we are. Right? And again, in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, and, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
we see here that those in Smyrna were experiencing tribulation. And tribulation is often a word that comes up when one studies eschatology. That is the, the last things. Its core meaning, tribulation, means to press or squeeze. And, and metaphorically, it means any kind of oppression or affliction or distress or hardship. Right? And, and tribulation, life of a Christian, is a common experience. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. So, so, so distress and oppression, affliction, that's normal Christian life. It's not, right? Love Jesus and everything's going to be good, right? Love Jesus, things may be bad. In a life, we're filled with this, in this world that's fallen. There's difficulty and hardship and tribulation, distress. And tribulation can come from circumstances of life. It's here in Smyrna, it's these people are trying to live faithfully for Christ and yet being hated by this, these Jewish synagogue, this Jewish synagogue. Or Jesus can bring the tribulation. Uh, look at verse 22 of, of chapter 2. When speaking to the church at, at Thyatira, Jesus is going to say those who refuse to repent of sexual immorality, he says... I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. There, there you've got Jesus even bringing the tribulation. The, the first fruits of judgment, if you will. And here in Smyrna, I, I think the tribulation they're experiencing is the tribulation of all who desire to live faithfully in Christ in a hostile world. But particularly, they were in a, a dark place. And when you try to be light in a dark place, you're not going to be looked upon with admiration. You'll be scorned and ridiculed and mocked for your faith, opposed at every step. Take heart the words of Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that's how believers need to overcome is, is through Jesus. He overcame, right? And our union with him will help us overcome through the tribulation. Well, we see those in, in Smyrna, right, in tribulation. And Jesus also knows not only the tribulation, but he also knows their poverty in verse 9. That means they're facing some financial hardships. Now, we don't know why in a flourishing city like Smyrna where there was much trade and there much good things happening, why is it the church, the people of the church were in poverty? Simply say, it's often the ways of God. When God builds his church, he doesn't necessarily bring in the strong and the rich. Because the strong and the rich don't need God. They're okay. It's those who are poor who need God, who cry out to God. And God, by design in the church, brings in the weak and the poor to show the power of the church is in him. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's how God designs the church. He brings in weak people that we might be strong in Him. He brings in poor people that we might be rich in Him. And I have no doubt this is why Smyrna was facing poverty, because it's the poor who need something, who cry out to God. But in their poverty, actually, there's a richness. There's a richness of their faith. That's why Jesus adds his parenthetical comment in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. See, there may be poor on the horizontal realm, but on the vertical realm, Jesus says you're rich. And would you rather be rich on the, on the vertical realm or the horizontal realm? The vertical realm. And, and, and a good way to think of those in Smyrna 
or to think about those in third world countries today. Poverty exists all around. And yet those who trust in Jesus have a wealth and joy that the world doesn't comprehend. And I've seen on my missionary journeys to Nepal and India, by, by um, our standards, the poorest among us, I'm saying whoever's got the most difficult financial poverty among us today is richer than anyone who I've met in the church in Nepal or India. You would be the one asked for, oh, we need a new building. Oh, we need this. Could you come? Can you help with this? Because you all would be filthy rich compared to them. Yet they have a, a richness that ought not to be despised. Paul describes his own life as being one, 2 Corinthians 6.10, that is sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. He himself, Paul, right? He, he preached the gospel freely and he lived in some measure of poverty and yet he said he was making people rich because making them rich in faith, such were those were here in Smyrna. They were rich. But in verse 9, we see a third characteristic of the church. They were facing religious persecution from the Jews. Uh, again, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, a few months ago, I, I wrapped up preaching through Acts. It took about three years. We got through the book of Acts. And we discovered that one of the major sources of persecution in the book of Acts was the synagogue. It was, it was the Jews. I mean, Paul would come in the city to, to preach the gospel to the Jew first, and then, then to the Greek, but he went to the, the, the synagogues first. And he would preach to them how Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, how he's the one that fulfilled all the Scripture. He's the one that calls you to repent, to find forgiveness of sins in him. And for a time, the Jews would tolerate Paul's message. That might be for a week in city um, in Antioch. Or it might be a couple weeks, like in Thessalonica. But as soon as they start to digest what, what he's actually saying is that, is that, you know what, you need to change your ways and, and begin to follow Jesus, your Messiah. They, they did not like that. When they understood what Paul was saying, they'd turn hostile. They began to contradict Paul and revile him. They'd stir up the crowds. They would drive Paul out of the cities. And when they heard that Paul was in the next town over doing the same thing, they would travel to that town and tell them to get this guy out of your city. He's bringing poison into your city. So much of their hatred. And certainly some of that was happening here in Smyrna, though things had settled down a little bit because the church had been established in Smyrna and there was some time, but still the synagogue was not happy with this church. This church that was faithfully gathering together, enjoying the message of God's grace to them in Christ. And extending God's glory as they spoke with others about Jesus. Loving others in the bonds of the church. Caring for others' needs. And the Jews hated that. So the Jews slandered them, is what it says in verse 9. You endure, I know, the slander of the Jews. That is, they spoke false things about the Christians in Smyrna. They may have said that they're following a false god. Or, like one of the biggest accusations against uh, Christians in the early days is that they were cannibals. You know why that would be? Because we eat the bread and drink the flesh, right? We, we eat the like, they, And they, they understood this. Oh, they're eating someone's flesh. It's like, they, they missed it. But they were accused of being cannibals. Also, they were accused of being sexually immoral. Do you know why that happened? Because they celebrated their love feasts. Right? They're potlucks, if you will, like we celebrated last week. The men cooking breakfast had a wonderful time. They say, 
Right? All they hear is this love feast, which it was. It was a love feast last Sunday. And um, they hear that, and they, they then call them sexually immoral people. It's like misunderstanding, but that's a slander that works. That's the lie that spreads. And all this gave the Christians then a bad reputation, and the Jews then certainly went to the, the Romans and that we hate them, right? And, and then the Romans, wanting peace, would then go after the Jews and would persecute them, and some of them would be killed for their faith in Smyrna. And the Jews did this because of who they really were. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They had a Jewish name. They had the Jewish scriptures. They professed to worship the Jewish God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. But in actuality, they were a synagogue of Satan. And truth be known today, I think there's some churches that are churches of Satan as well. Oh, not avert. Like, there's no church that would say, oh yeah, we're worshiping Satan. Right? Get it all dark and all this blood stuff. It wouldn't be that. But in the name of Jesus, promoting sinful lifestyle. How many churches today are promoting sinful lifestyles in the name of Jesus? How many in the church today are waging war against the culture, against the true gospel of Christ? Christ dying for our sins, right? They're fighting against that. Churches are. And maybe Jesus even sees them as churches of Satan. Well, that's what Smyrna was facing. And Jesus said, I know all about it. Isn't that comforting? I know all about it. Let's move on to verse 10. In this verse, right, we see the core of the exhortation to the church. He says this, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here's my third point here, is that Jesus rewards. He rewards. He gives a crown. You see that right there in the last phrase of verse 10. By the way, we're going to work through verse 10 kind of backwards because the core of it is here. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is the reward that the believers, every believer in Jesus Christ has to look forward to this crown of life. Obviously, it's a metaphorical picture of, a, of everlasting life, but there's this, this honor that there's a, there's a crown that one receives who is faithful unto death. We, we had a great picture this past week, right? And the world witnessed the coronation of, of King Charles III. How many of you saw this? Maybe pull it up on YouTube a little bit. It's amazing. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I saw enough to know Christian words. And yet, actually maybe a church of Satan. Because everything they said, they were denying in their actions. Like, it's just hollow words, hollow truths. But the key moment, the coronation, is when the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, placed St. Edward's crown upon Charles's head. That was like, that's, that's kind of the clip of what I saw, just placing this right there upon his head. It sits there. The moment that Charles III was crowned king, that's a picture of the reward of Christians who are faithful unto death will receive. When Christians persevere to the end, when they stand before Jesus, when he puts his crown upon his head, he says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. We see the crown of Righteousness. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, the crown of life here. What's interesting here, do you know the only time King Charles will ever wear St. Edward's crown is on his coronation day? He's not wearing it anymore. 
Do you know where it is right now? Where are the crown jewels? In the Tower of London. That's where they sit. The crown jewels just sit in the tower, the jewel house, the Tower of London. How many of you have been able to see the jewels in the Tower of London? Yeah, Yvonne and I did a long time ago. It's amazing. But that crown just sits there awaiting the next king to be crowned. But not so the crown of life that believers in Jesus will receive. Our crown remains on our head for all eternity. He's not going to take it off, give it to someone else. We're, we're all going to have crowns of righteousness. Uh, of course, right? That's, that's hyperbole. Right? Don't expect, hey, we're in heaven. We're all going to wear these crowns. Like, what? whoa, yeah, heavy that thing is. Like, whoa, fall over. Well, big neck muscles in heaven because we have these big crowns. on it. But we're going to receive this crown of life for all eternity. In fact, that's where Revelation is headed. When you get to Revelation chapter 22, right, we see the river of the water of life in Revelation 22, verse 10. We see the tree of life in Revelation 22, verse 2, right, 22, verse 1 and 22, verse 2, the, the river of the water of life, the, the tree of life. We will get to eat and drink forevermore in the presence of God, right? If I open the service this morning, what, right? I'm the bread of life. You eat from Jesus and you'll be eternally satisfied and we will be eternally satisfied in heaven. That, that revelation is going. This place of life. The promise first laid out here in verse 10. To get to the crown, you need to suffer first. Jesus, to get his crown, he endured the cross. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Here Jesus is warning those who are in Smyrna of the tribulation that's coming upon them. Prison and death. Thrown into prison. Now prison in the ancient world is merely a, a prelude oftentimes to death. You know, five weeks or so, some of us will be going into the prison for the of going to the jail, spiritual impact weekend, and the jail is far different than any ancient prison. The jail is like so clean and hard, like there's nothing there, but it's clean. Right? Right, Gary? It's a clean place. Yep. <clears throat> Super clean. Air conditioned, right? Air conditioned because Gary says that the colder it stays in, the, those people are more at peace. But if it gets hot, then tempers kind of rise. So they keep it really cold in there. The ancient world prisons cold, damp, <clears throat> think, think uh, neglected cellars. That's, I mean, that's the easiest place. You just dig a hole and throw them in there, right? Maybe some, some water seeping in from the groundwater, unsanitary places, no toilets, um, infested with rats, oftentimes putrid smells waft across the prison. The only foods available is from your friends from the outside, the prison, bring you food. Hunger's commonplace there in prison, but for some of those in Smyrna, it's what they were facing. And perhaps for them it meant torture as well. That's when he says here that you will be tested. Maybe that's a torture. Tested with torture. Are you going to deny Jesus? Right? Maybe a strike on the back. Maybe it's Polycarp. Think about how many times Polycarp had an opportunity to repent. Right? Similarly, right, you're being tortured. The torture would stop if you just, right, repent. Right? Well, well repent backwards, right? Recant. You can stop that. But the good news is this. Is that Jesus says, only be for 10 days. Just 10 days. It's, it's good news that God was in control of the tribulation, right? 
The devil may be the one throwing him into the prison, but the Lord is the warden of the prison. And he determines when they get out. And he determines how long the prisoner's stay will be. And in this case, ten days. Ten days is all. Ten days of hardship to receive the crown of life. Is it worth it? Ten days versus eternity. Which one's bigger? What side is the greater sign? Greater than less sign? Eternity is much bigger than the ten days. Yes, it's worth it. And that's the whole point. Right? The devil's going to throw you into prison. Oops, I skipped forward here. The devil's going to throw you into prison. You're going to suffer. You're going to be tested. But stay true. Because in the end, your reward will come. You'll get the, the crown of life, which no one's going to be able to remove from your head. And it's, it's with the end in view that it's reasonable then to endure 10 days of suffering in order to get there. And that's, here we go, that's what Polycarp had when he was talking with the proconsul. You remember when Polycarp was asked about, I'm going to throw you into fire. And Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of the eternal punishment reserved for the, for the ungodly. And easily Polycarp could have said, but you're ignorant of the reward that's coming my way. It comes to those who are faithful unto death. I'm awaiting the crown of life which will never be removed from my head. He could have said that. I wish he did. That would have been great. Tie here to Revelation chapter 2. I do believe that he knew the promise of Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 because he was a leader in the church at Smyrna. If any place in the Bible is written to Smyrna, it's like these four verses, especially it's for you, right? Maybe at some building wherever they met, where they met in a house or at a building, right? Maybe they were etched upon a, a wall someplace. Just reminding Smyrna of who they were. In fact, several early church fathers, Irenaeus and Tertullian, say that Polycarp knew the, the Apostle John. Polycarp knew the one who wrote this. And John, even if he didn't get a, a letter of Polycarp, he, he could have easily been heard from John. Well, what, what's going to happen in Smyrna? Here's what's going to happen. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison, tortured, tested, ten days. But be faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. And I'm sure that was ringing in his mind. But... But Polycarp knew the, the temporal nature of life and punishment as opposed to the eternity of, of life with Christ. He couldn't, he couldn't turn away from him. And really knowing that this reward awaits us is going to strengthen us today for that day. Be faithful unto death if that day would ever come. No interesting here. Right? Those, those in Smyrna had an example to follow. Uh, next week, when we consider this man called Antipas, if you look at verse 13, there was this man, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Antipas was a martyr there in Pergamum. And we'll think about that. But here is, be faithful unto death. There's a reward that awaits you. Right? Just even continuing on in your Christian life can turn into, continue, endure it till the end, and there's a reward that awaits you, which we'll, we'll see here in our, our final point this morning, my last point. Jesus lives, right, so we can have hope past the death. He knows everything's happened in us, our church, our lives. He rewards us, and here he, he calls us. Here's verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, verse 11, closely paralleled in almost all of the, the letters in Revelation 2 and 3. This, whole, this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is repeated to every single church verbatim. We heard it last week when we were in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 7, to the, um, 
He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 17, says the same thing to, uh, to Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every single time. In other words, right? These are public letters. And the invitation summons comes to us to Rock Valley Bible Church. Do you have an ear? Listen to what he's telling to the church at Smyrna. Now you might be thinking, well, I live in America. I'm not going to die for my faith. What, what use is this? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And, and again, right? Every, every, every letter has to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. Chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will eat. Grant to eat of the tree of life. Chapter 2, verse 17. Pergamum. And to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. He's going to do something, right? The, to the one who conquers is, is context specific. And here, in this one, in the case of Smyrna, to the one who conquers, to the one who remains faithful even to death, that one will not be hurt by the second death. Faithful unto death, you will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus said, I think, the one who endures until the end will be saved. See, Christianity isn't about starting. Christianity isn't about making a decision. Christianity is about definishing, passing through the line. It's those who endure until the end to be saved. And it's only those who endure until the end to be saved. Having preached the church of Smyrna, you might be thinking, well, I'm not going to be martyred for my faith. And you know what? I... 99% 99% sure none of you will be martyred for your faith. Now, you might, okay, so that's about the 1%. But I would, be, I would be shocked, and I think all of us would be shocked. In fact, we would be shocked as a nation if one person was martyred truly for their faith. So it's probably not going to happen to you. Yet, the call of Christ is still the call to die. Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up what? cross and follow me the idea of taking your cross is a willingness to die you you take your cross to the place of crucifixion when you take your cross as jesus did on that that road that via dolorosa he was taking it and ready to put it on so he could be nailed to the cross you take up your cross that means i'm willing to die and i'm taking this and bearing it to the place that i i may die and certainly means denying yourself if anyone come to me, let him deny himself. It means turning away from yourself. It turns turning to others and turning to God. It means living for Christ, whatever may be the consequences. And for those who received the revelation, again, the persecuted church, death was a real possibility. We're going to read in chapter 12 of those who conquer Satan. And they conquer him, Revelation 12, verse 11. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. That's what we're called to do. Love not our lives even unto death. Jesus says the promise, if you don't love your life even unto death, you will not be hurt by the second death. So you say, well, what's the second death? Well, it sounds exactly what it is. It's death after death. The first death will be when you die here upon the earth, and then the second death will be when you die for eternity. It's mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. The second death is the lake of fire. What's mentioned there? Kind of in the end, at the the great white throne judgment, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But the promise here, you endure to the end. You're faithful unto death. You're not going to be thrown into the lake of fire. You get past that second death. Oh, you'll, you'll die once. That's out of this world into the realm of Christ. You receive that, that crown. The second death is also mentioned in 21, verse 18. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those who have not repented of their deeds. Now, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, we know of, of people who were these very things. They were murderers and sexually immoral and idolaters. They repented. But those who continue to walk that way until the end, it's those who are in the second death, the lake of fire, that portion that burns. So do you want to die once or twice? You want to die once. I guarantee you, you just want to die once. Because the song we're going to sing as I, after I pray, it's not death to die. Because there's a second death. The second death is the real death. The first death is not dying. The second death is dying. Let me just read it for you. It is not death to die. To leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Verse 2, it is not death to fling aside the earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlocks the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. So don't fear the first death. Fear the second death. And escape the second death by being faithful unto death. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would raise up just a, an army of people here at Rock Valley Bible Church, small though we be, may be, may be faithful people, God, who, who in facing death, if that ever does, Perhaps on some missions trip or some young people goes to a, a difficult land where there have been people who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. Oh God, I pray that we would be faithful to death. Or at least even give us that attitude, oh God, that, that denies ourselves and that takes up our cross, that follows you, that realizes this life is so short. And any suffering that we receive is, is so small. God, I, I thank you for the book of Revelation which teaches us and shows us that all will be made right if we die for Christ, we will live again forevermore, drinking from the river of the water of life and eating from the tree of life gives us eternal life. Oh God, so help us and strengthen us this day for that day. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.